0: Hello everybody, this is Andrew Young with the latest edition of the Econ Weekly podcast. Uh, we're recording today on April 15th, 2022, and um, delighted to say I'm joined, as, as always, by uh, the publisher of Econ Weekly, Jay Shabbat. Hello there, Jay. Hello, Andrew. Good day. Good, good, good day to you, sir. Um, so we are recording... 24 hours earlier than we would normally do but uh, on the basis that it's uh, it's good Easter Friday or Good Friday. Um, we're kind of hoping that there's probably not going to be any major news stories or events that, that, that we're missing um, this, this time. Um, so in, in terms of today's session, as always, lots of news out there. Um, I, we'll cover today on the macro side, um, more more inflationary uh, headlines coming through, but I also uh, will touch on um, some of the highlights from the, the earnings season, which, which has started off. We're, we're now in April, so we're starting to see the Q1 results coming through, so we can see, see that as well. And certainly today, Jay, I'd really like to get time for us to... Uh, to talk a little bit about the, the Navajo Nation, which was the, uh, the location that we have focused on in, in this week's edition. So that's what I'm hoping we can cover. Um, so let's go back to the top. And uh, so tell us, uh, the inflation worries are, are over now, are they, in the US?
1: Not exactly. There was a, a small piece of good news uh, in the in- latest inflation data, and this is uh, CPI data, Consumer Price Index, that's published monthly by the Labor Department. The slight, uh, what you'd call good news, and maybe even slight is uh, maybe maybe that's the wrong adjective. Maybe it's uh, you know it it is it is rather meaningful. Uh, the The fact is that inflation, the, the headline number, uh, was was very high. So inflation is still running at eight point five percent annually, and uh, the even the month to month number was very high. I think it exceeded one percent just between February and March. But if you remove energy and food, the number was much more restrained. Uh, I'm looking here. I think it was 0.3% between uh, February and March um, and 6.5% year over year. So that, what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, energy uh, and specifically fuel, gasoline for your cars um, and food purchased either at supermarkets or even mm-hmm. food, To to some extent, purchasing food away outside of you know in restaurants as well, but mostly think about food that you consume at home. Um, that's where we're just seeing uh inflation really spike. And remember that these numbers, because they're for March, they're reflecting a lot of what's going on in Ukraine and the war there and what's that what that's done to food and energy markets. Um, so that's all serious, it's not something you can ignore, but those numbers are considered very, very volatile. I mean, food and energy. They're all over the place. You don't know what's going to happen next week, next month, next year. So we kind of, some economists like to just kind of put them aside um, and just to kind of get a sense of what's happening in the rest of, of the uh, sort of consumer price basket. And, and in that sort of remainder, um, in, in that area, sort of outside food and energy, as I said, uh, there are definitely signs that inflation is cooling off a bit. Still high, but cooling off. And one area where we're starting to see prices actually decline um, rather significantly, uh, is used cars, uh, which, um, still up a lot year over year. I mean, if you're going out and buying a used car, you're still going to pay a lot more today than you would have if you purchased one a year earlier, but moving from month to month, the price is starting to slip again. So that's, um, that's pretty much the inflation story, uh, as it stands.
0: OK, well, yes. And um, yes, it's interesting to see. So can some leading indicators suggesting that uh, we're over the the hump. Um, food and energy, of course, as we mentioned last and last week's uh, edition, it is a challenge for the poorer uh, people in, 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 in the country, in society. Um, so politically, I think inflation is still a huge issue even if economically I think we're seeing maybe signs of it, of it coming down. Right no doubt
1: I mean it's it's and even economically I mean for, for households uh, they're still they're, they're still dealing with a, a difficult situation um, when it comes to you know going out to the grocery store and having to pay more for for their food. Uh, now the flip side of that is that you know as we've talked about before, wages have also been going up. Um, if you kind of look at wages and prices together, we can um, the, the labor Department publishes what's called the, the real average hourly earnings. Um, and that actually real meaning inflation adjusted by the way, our mm-hmm. Um And that number actually decreased uh, by almost 1% from February to March. So people, again, this is these are averages. So it doesn't you know there's going to be uh, variance within these averages. But on, on, on uh, you know, across the economy, real average earnings uh, are declining. So people are essentially getting poorer. Um, so that is uh, a very volatile issue, whether it, you know, politically, economically, whatever other, you know, category one, depends on. it's, it's not a good situation. And it's why, to bring it kind of back to the main theme here of uh, economic policy, it's why the Federal Reserve is now getting really aggressive about um, trying to stop this by increasing the cost of borrowing. And the goal there is to maybe slow the economy a little bit so that we can bring down prices. Um, Will they succeed? A lot of people out there are really worried that they won't and that there's gonna be a recession before long. Um, That's kind of been the history when the Fed tends to tighten rather quickly. By tightening, I'm meaning making credit more expensive. Um, But, you know, others are saying, look, it's, you know, recession, the risk of recession is rather limited because the job market is just so super hot. And, uh, you know, household balance sheets are really good. By that, I mean, you know, that people have generally rather high levels of savings and incomes. Um, Companies, as we've talked about, have been very profitable. So uh, just just a whole lot of uncertainty um, in the economy right now.
0: Yeah, unusual um, kind of status that, that we're in, um, you know. Yeah. So, and so, and I want
1: to stress, Andrew, sorry to cut you off there, but I just uh, I think it's important to say that um, and this came, this very much came across in the uh, earnings reports or earnings presentations that companies like J.P. Morgan and Delta Airlines and Wells Fargo Bank started giving this week. Um, the 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 clear uh consensus on the state of the economy is that right now it still is very strong i mean people are clearly spending they're spending on travel they're spending on this they're spending on that um but the but the risks to that sort of spending coming to a halt or easing that those risks are definitely real
0: yeah so so that's really where i was going to kind of guide us next jay because you know, we have had some earnings reports. We we can see different sectors of the economy saying how their business has done in Q1, but probably more interesting is what they see as the outlook. So what 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 were they saying in terms of are they looking like it could be a recession, a continuation of this high demand that they've been experiencing? And then the the challenge of the, the, the supply constraints that they have but what what was the take from the choose a couple of different sectors that we that we've heard from this this week
1: sure well i'll mention jp morgan chase because they're the largest bank in the united states so they have a lot of visibility on what's going on in the economy and uh just to sort of this is a bit of a repeat of what i just said but they can see the economy right now is you know very strong it's uh, like i said people are spending money um, the, the demand for loans is, is up. Um, it's growing. So in uh, commercial loans, So that means, you know, businesses are going out and, you know, borrowing money to, uh, you know, engage in new projects and build things and invest in things. So that's, that's all, it's all good. I think Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of uh, JPMorgan Chase had a quote, uh, is said something like, I do Maybe paraphrasing here, but the consumer has money and they're spending their money. Um, so there you go. Uh, however, he also said that there are a couple of key risks that are rather elevated. Um, one is the geopolitical risk that we could all see going on in you know between Russia and Ukraine, and how that's affecting commodity markets and whatnot. Um, another is, of course, the inflation. Another, still another, is this all, are all the supply chain issues that we've been talking about for the past two years now. Uh, and there's, you know, uh, just, I mentioned commodity, you know, what what geopolitical risks are doing in the commodity space, but oil markets and specific oil markets specifically um, can be another, you know, uh, I think he, he used the term cloud on the horizon. So just a lot of unpredictability there. Uh, what does a lot, a lot of economists now and, and, and um, you know, the, certainly the banking industry is trying to assess what the Federal Reserve's new policy on interest rates, their new kind of hawkish policy on interest rates, what's that going to mean? What's it going to mean for spending? What's it going to mean for interest rates? What's it going to mean for the housing market? Um, and you know, <laughs> you can find all sorts of different economists who have you know different opinions on that. Um, but uh, bottom line is, you know, a lot a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, just moving to you know one other industry uh that was kind of in the news last week because of earnings season is delta because they reported and they said despite even the elevated fuel prices people are people continue to travel there's just a lot of demand for uh specifically leisure travel so yeah the price of fuel is going up which is you know often the number one cost for airlines yet uh you know, Delta is able to raise the price and cover their costs and people are still booking. So uh, really, yeah, it's, you know, a pretty good news story on the demand front still.
0: Yes, and, and I think the other thing is, you know, we've spoken a lot about the, the international market for airlines is is really very sluggish, um, as well as, I guess, the, the business market for them. It's the domestic or near- distance leisure market which is really the one that's that's on fire so international conflict and things that are economically or politically kind of affecting around the world is is less actually of an impact on delta than it it would have been presumably um, yeah i mean, the, I mean the that does, lockdown that in china now is you know it's not going to make any difference because they've not had a market in china for probably two years
1: Right, and, and even before COVID, China was never really that big of a market for U.S. airlines. The, they, the take out China, and you know maybe a few other countries in Asia, like Japan, being an important one, uh, take that out, and and even international traffic is starting to pick up now, and even business traffic is starting to pick up now. So it's it's pretty much a bullish story on all fronts. I'm not saying it's exactly you know the same level where it was pre-COVID let's say on flights to Europe. But but yeah, I mean, Delta says anytime that a country starts uh, removing their barriers to travel, then, uh, you know, as long as they let people in and uh, you don't have to take a million covid tests or whatever, then as soon as they do that, bookings just immediately jump.
0: Yes. Yes. And of course, you know, arrivals into the U.S., Still have to uh, have a, a, a COVID test taken within, I believe, two days of, uh, mm-hmm. of arriving. So it's just that it is an extra barrier, which when that's lifted, um, it can only have an upside on, uh, on, on demand for them. Yeah. Um, and I'll say
1: just one more thing generally about consumer spending. And, you know, that's the reason why we talk about consumer spending so much is because that's the real engine of the economy, the US economy. It's something like 70% of GDP. So you know, a simple statement you can make is that when consumers are spending, the economy is healthy. Um, it's pretty pretty much you can boil it down to that. And there was actually a report on uh, on retail spending that came out. Um, another monthly report, I think, is at the Census that, that puts that out. Um, and it was still pretty good. There's some nuance in there that we discussed in this week's issue. So, for example, um, spending was up uh, month to month. So from February to March. Uh, Consumers spent more, um, which is good. It was like 0.5% more. Um, It's a good sign. Now, if you remove gas uh, gas stations from the picture, spending was actually down. So you can see people are just spending a lot more of their money at gas stations. So that's not good. But if you also remove uh, autos, so people buying cars and trucks, um, if you remove gas and autos, then spending is up. So um and remember that autos is uh that's not a demand issue, that's a supply issue, right? People are spending yes. less
0: yeah. on autos, as you know. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not available,
1: right? The semiconductor issue. Um, and there's also, you know, these, these um spending figures are not adjusted for prices. So because everything's more expensive, then yeah, people are going to be spending more money for you know getting the same stuff. They're basically getting, you know, less less for what they're paying for, but um. The but but certainly you know the uh people spending money at you know supermarkets is that was that was up quite a bit. Um some of that is prices. Um but the fact is is even though prices are up, people are you know, people are still buying. So yep. the yeah, so that retail report was, I would say, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it ragingly bullish or anything, but hmm. but it was it was reasonably comforting.
0: Yeah, I and that's actually a good segue into another. Feature that we had this week on on Amazon, and um, you know their their continued continued growth. Uh, I, I saw that they is it actually a new highest of three hundred thousand in in the last year.
1: Incredible, yeah, three hundred thousand people that they hired last year.
0: It, yeah, really? so uh, clearly Jeff Bezos was holding them back. So now he's gone. <laughs> new guy. Andy Jazzy can kind of, I mean, it's uh, it's just quite quite an incredible uh, story and, and development, and and it, you know, I mentioned that in terms of kind of retail spending because people think of Amazon in terms of their retail e-commerce platform, the big warehouses they have, and all the deliverables, which yeah you know, is a huge part of their business. But it's not the only part of the Amazon story, though, is it?
1: No the, you know and, and this is um, you know some of those the, the, the stats you were pulling numbers you were mentioning came from a letter that Andy Jassy, Andy Jassy, as, as Andrew mentioned is the new chief executive who replaced the founder Jeff Bezos last year earlier this year um, and he wrote sort of a letter to shareholders and he a lot of, a lot of interesting statistics in there another one I'll give you is that Amazon in the past 15 years has spent 100 billion dollars. On capital investment, so really investing in the economy. Um, a lot of that is building warehouses. Um, one more for you: <laughs> in 2004, when Amazon was, you know, pretty young, they had just seven fulfillment centers, which are, you know, the warehouses that they uh, that they, you know, distribute their goods. Um, they only had seven of them in 2004 in the U.S. Um, They currently have 253, (laughs) so it's, and that's, uh, then they have something called 110 sortation centers, which, uh, you know, I don't even know what that is, but um, just huge, huge growth, and they're involved in so many different things, you know, from, uh, they have streaming video, they just bought MGM uh, Studios, which owns the rights to James Bond, they're working on satellite internet service, Uh, they're into healthcare, and they have an advertising you know, our, they have advertising revenues, gaming. Um, they own Whole Foods, so it's it's a big multi tentacled monster.
0: Yes, I think our Amazon Web Services was kind of up something like thirty seven percent. Yes, um, so we didn't
1: even talk about that. That's like a big one of the you know the yeah. crown jewels. And and, they're,
0: big, and yes. yeah, they and they are the market leader in in that space. I mean, in terms right. of cloud computing. um Yeah, so. that's yeah,
1: exactly cloud computing where they're basically. They're basically selling rented computing uh, capabilities to the rest of the economy. If I characterize that correctly,
0: yes, that, that, that's right. And you know, and that's from very small one people, one person businesses, through to small startups, and then to huge corporations and the government. Um, everybody is kind of taking advantage of the fact that it's a lot less expensive to have all of your computer processing in the in the cloud. You know, we're in these huge shared data server centers uh, than it is to kind of try and do that yourself, manage that locally. So I imagine that enormous increase in warehouse construction uh, <laughs> that Amazon have been doing probably offset a little bit in terms of the reduced footprint of server rooms across, <laughs> across most of corporate America, where they don't need to kind of have all that... Uh, all those big uh, computer processing machines anymore um, so I don't think we can kind of end this little section about uh, company news and uh, the economy this week without mentioning a I think there was a there's a US there's a US-based businessman that's been looking to buy a technology company I just heard something on the grapevine. Um, that, that blew up this week. I think there's been a mountain of talk about this. Um, I don't know whether Jay, you've kind of just got a, a, a take on this and what we, what we mentioned about this in uh, this week's edition.
1: Yeah, so Andrew is referring to uh, the one and only Elon Musk and his uh, plan to buy Twitter, the social media site. And Elon Musk, of course, is the, uh, the head of uh, Tesla and also SpaceX. Um, considered probably the most iconic business person of, uh, you know, the, the economy today, almost on par with what Steve Jobs was a decade ago. Um, he's really, you know, incredible, visionary, uh, just, just the, the, his, you know, his single handedly, just, uh, you know, advanced the the, the concept of electric cars, you know, just by probably by a decade, just just um, just his own company. So, you know, quite quite a an influential and revered figure, controversial figure as well for, for a variety of reasons, some of the things he says and does. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, you know, I won't comment on too much. A lot of, uh, there's been a lot of commentary out there already, um, but uh, he wants to buy Twitter. He thinks, uh, you know, one just general thing I'll say about Twitter is that, it's in terms of its its usage, and its um, influence, even in geopolitical affairs, um, is it's enormous. I mean, you know people uh, you know people ascribed people ascribed Twitter to, uh, um, or people people sort of you know say that Twitter was partially responsible for you know revolutions around the world, and things like that. Just that it's a platform for it's a very powerful platform for people to speak. Um, but in terms of uh, Twitter as a business, um, it's never quite achieved the scale or the profitability um, anywhere close to what let's say Facebook, uh, another social media site or, or you know even YouTube within within Google. It's just not just hasn't achieved that kind of profitability. So you know many analysts over the years have said that Twitter's kind of under sort of hits below it's Weight, so to speak, it's um, you know there's more potential there that, that could be realized, um, and Elon Musk, you know, thinks that he might be able to do it, and we don't know his true motivations. Is it a you know strictly a business move, or is it more, uh, you know, he he sees uh, he has very strong views on free speech and you know what these social media platforms um, should uh, should allow and disallow. So you know it may, it may just be his own preferences in that area. But uh we will uh see if he succeeds in his takeover. Last I checked, uh, the company Twitter itself is going to uh you know try to fight fight this and uh hopefully uh from their perspective get get its shareholders to reject Elon Musk's takeover
0: and we'll see. Yeah we, yes I think we, we will see I'm sure we'll we'll have an update uh next week what's happening there. I just saw in the the journal today announcing that Twitter were essentially trying to put in some kind of poison pill uh, mechanism, which would restrict the ability for him to to acquire the company. But it, you know uh, these stories come up. But typically, it's activist investors. Uh, remember the famous name Carl Icahn, kind of looking to buy parts of parts of businesses so they could have influence on the board and therefore change the direction. Often they were looking at things like divestments or, um, or or other way, you know, just shareholder benefits, like kind of uh, a, a better return on uh, on shares. Um, but I think with this one, this is unusual because there's literally kind of an individual just wants to come in and, and take out this influential um, organization. So very interesting, for sure. Um, so. Um, so let's just move on to um, one of the other areas that we did did look at uh, in this week, and it, it's it's I guess you call it agriculture, um, but it's a little bit beyond that. I mean, agriculture people just think of you know enormous fields and, and farming, um, the the shipment of all of those uh, you know the cereals and other crops around, but actually it's the tip of a very large sector of the economy which is every, every where that where that food ends up going you know how it gets processed and then kind of uh, sold through other grocery stores or or retailers or exported um but the i guess the the romantic side of it and the area that was always a very large part of the the, the founding of the u.s is is the agricultural element um i think it's fair to say that it's far less of an important aspect of the u.s economy today and seems to seems to be having some some difficulties which uh, which really is not reflected downstream downstream you know there's there's not really an issue as far as food we we have enormous amount of choice and we have typically very very low prices for for food as a consumer but, but what 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 did we find you know, in terms of the agricultural industry and and how that's working in the u s at the moment in in farming
1: right right and I'm um, on any issue this week i I uh, make reference to uh, an article that appeared in the economist um magazine and uh, or i believe they call themselves a, a new a newspaper
0: newspaper uh, yes. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah I, I, I know they always uh, make make that correction. But uh, what, by whatever, uh, by whatever label, The Economist had a, a an article that was very interesting about sort of a paradox that's happening in rural America, where um, farming is actually uh, farmers are very prosperous, uh, or they're they're going through a very prosperous time right now, and the reasons are are varied. I mean, chiefly you have commodity prices being very high. We talked about that earlier. You know, food prices being very high well, that's in general good for farmers. And they, to be sure they also face their own cost inflation when it comes to buying fertilizer and seeds and and whatnot. So it's not, you know, it's not just pure, they're not pocketing all that, but, but it's, but it's definitely, you know, when the price of a food goes up, they benefit. And the other thing is um, if you're growing particularly crops like corn and wheat and soybeans, uh, farm; those crops are very heavily subsidized by the U.S. government, and even more so during the COVID pandemic. There were all sorts of, um, you know, relief uh, programs, um, and even going before that, um, during the Trump administration, when they imposed uh, tariffs on a lot of other um, on a lot of goods, the agricultural sector was really badly hit by that. But to sort of compensate, um, the governments uh, just increase their subsidy payments. Essentially, mm. their their this, uh,
0: this was because of um, exports to China, which were right. essentially either not happening or became in, uncompetitive because of the the trade right. war. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. So China was, you know, China's one of the bigger markets for, let's say, soybean farmers in the U.S. And um, so, yeah, there was there was all sorts of adjustments. So in any case, um, bottom line is that farmers uh, had a you know did very well there, throughout the pandemic and continue to do well. However, uh, the paradox here is that rural America, these places where farms are, are in in serious decline. And when I say decline, when the economist says decline, what they're talking about is shrinking populations and you know things like churches and schools closing because there's just not enough people. Uh, so that is a, um, you know, what, why is that? That's, that's I an mean, unusual uh, pair of circumstances there, you know, from, uh, uh, an industry doing so well, but, but the physical place where the industry is doing so poorly. And a lot of that is simply that agriculture has become um, not very labor intensive. It just doesn't require a lot of workers. So you can produce, and it's quite, it's, it's impressive <laughs> actually, uh, how much some of these farms, how much output some of these farms can produce with just so few workers. Um, it tends to be, you know, there there are certain um, crops like fruit and vegetables that tend to be more labor intensive. And, you know, you hear about, you know, people picking strawberries and, uh, you know, having to recruit uh, seasonal workers from Mexico for that. But that's fruit and vegetables. Those are not subsidized. So we're not really Talking about that here, we're talking more about corn, wheat, and soybeans, which is that's where you know that's a that's big money, and uh, not that the other isn't either, but that that's you know where you get these huge export figures and whatnot, um, and it's in those play in those sort of areas of the farm economy where you just don't have that much labor. In fact, only uh, one point four percent of the American workforce actually works on a farm today. Um, and that number is going to be higher in a place like Iowa, for example, it may be closer to 10%. But still, it's nowhere like it was, you know, in, in throughout American history, in early American history, you know, 80% of Americans were, were farmers, um, even as recently as, you know, 1930s, 1940s, it was a very, very large percentage. Um, and uh, now it's just 1%. So and uh, yeah, that's you have this paradox, um, the paradox of, of the agricultural sector.
0: Well, yes. And, and, you know, Jay makes me think because we we have got much better productivity, a lot of automation, as you say. I mean, in fact, even now, you know, John Deere are building autonomous tractors and in, intelligent farm machinery that even takes out that small amount of labor that, that was required um it, it makes me wonder if kind of you know it's the rural areas which are going to kind of be the ones where you know if there's going to be any kind of experiment with a universal basic income it's not in like rust belts it's probably more in kind of keeping rural america populated um because otherwise you know how how else, how else do you do it the land is taken up by farming but you do not be, need the people to actually work work on the land it's um It's going to be an interesting, interesting uh, impact. Um, I think you reported the other week something like seventy-five percent of U.S. counties are losing population. Um, Now that 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 is part of that is a sign of the attractiveness of the other twenty-five percent. Yes, I mean particularly down here where I am in Texas, and you see that in Florida, but. You know, people don't just leave because they want to live in Texas. Um, It's uh, it's also a reflection of the fact that, yeah, there's the attractiveness of in those 75 percent of the country um, by by county is um, is actually losing people. So, yeah, um, it's uh, you know, it is not just an economics um, uh, issue, I'd, I'd say.
1: Absolutely not. No, this this spills over into all sorts of politics and social issues for, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um and and I think you know, kind of linked to that we've gonna move into the area that I said at the top of the show, I didn't want us to kind of lo- lose the opportunity to speak about. So that's the the Navajo Nation. Um I, probably one of the more more interesting uh locations that we've chosen so each week in econ weekly we choose a a town or a region uh navajo nation is is this week's um area and um i think economically quite a challenged area for for you know very specific reasons and um you know for me especially the 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 headline (laughs) that struck out was that you know despite the 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 size um there's not a single walmart there now the rest of the united states tends to i think have a walmart and i think nobody lives more than four miles from a walmart um so what what what's going on with the navajo nation um ajay right it's it's um it's a real interesting
1: so the navajo nation is um the largest uh, indian reservation in the united states um it has it's 60 million acres if, if you google it you can uh you know, google map you can see just how large it is it takes up a big chunk of arizona there's some overlap into utah new mexico and colorado and indian reservations are, are essentially um they are they have their own government so there are certain things that the government can and can't do so you know they're not going to have their own foreign policy they can't start their own war or anything but they have certain you know uh jurisdiction over um you know they have their own courts for example Um, So there's a very um, so there's there's a unique set of um, sort of laws and uh, unique set of um, sort of business conditions that uh, companies have to deal with if they want to invest um, on on a reservation. Um, And in this case, um, Walmart is people from the Navajo Nation and there's uh, 174,000 is sort of the latest. That was a population figure that I saw. Um, now there, there are more, there are actually about 400,000 Navajo people, but only 174,000 actually live on the reservation and they absolutely, um, uh, shop at Walmart, but they cross over the border into towns like, uh, there's one called Farmington, New Mexico, which is right on the, the border of the Navajo nation. Um, Gallup, uh, is that New Mexico? I can't remember. Um, uh, did I say, um, Gallup, New Mexico, right, right. Flagstaff, Arizona was the other one. Um, okay. then, yeah, Far- Farmington, I think, is New Mexico. In any case, yeah, that's that's um, the, the the point is, of course, is that um, there's no Walmart on the reservation. And a lot of this comes down to the the, com- the jurisdictional complexity, the business complexity. Um, Walmart will, you know, if they're approached to invest, uh, they'll say, well, we, you know, we don't have, I don't know exactly what they say, but I'm sure they, you know, point to the fact that, uh, well, if, uh, you know, we we don't, we're going to have to abide by two sets of laws. Um, There's all sorts of unusual land laws as well. Um, So the Navajo Nation is actually, or these Indian reservations, a lot of them, it's actually federal land. So um, if you want to invest, um, if you want to build something on land, um, you can't, you won't own the land yourself, so you can't use it as collateral. So, a bank, for example, and I'm talking even like as an individual, if you want to buy a house, um, you can't collateralize. You can't, you can't say the bank and, and and say, well, if you, you know, if you, if I don't pay back this loan, you can have the land um, because uh, of the unique legal situation there. So it sort of it prevents a lot of home ownership. It prevents a lot of business development. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely an issue for their economic development. So where do, you know, what is the economy of the Navajo Nation? Um, a lot of it is, is, is natural resources, so oil, gas. Um, they're trying to develop, you know, some cleaner forms like solar and wind. They had a big coal plant that recently closed just in 2019. So that costs the, uh, you know, the, the, the tribal government quite a bit of revenue. Um, and, you know, a lot of jobs lost as well. Um casino gaming is another. Um, so the tribe owns, um, I think, four or five casinos on the reservation. Um, but, you know, is that really never mind even what happened during COVID, where you know, all that all that revenue got decimated. But even, you know, even before COVID and looking ahead, you know, how profitable is that? It's, you know, casinos in um sort of the, the tribal casinos tend to have worked well to the best of my knowledge i'm far from expert on this but uh, they tend to work well when they're near big cities so i know there's one in, there's a couple in connecticut for example that are just not far from boston they're not far from new york city so they're able to you know draw on a big income pool whereas you know if you look at the map there's not really too many too much you know not too many, there's no population centers around navajo nation you have Albuquerque's, a, you know, a few hours drive away. And even that's, you know, not a huge city. It's not a particularly wealthy city. Phoenix is is bigger and wealthier, but it's all it's, it's considerably further. You know, it's 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 quite a bit of a drive. Yeah.
0: And, um, and you're not that far. Yeah. You're not that far from Las Vegas as well. Uh,
1: there you go. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's you're competing to a sense, you know, in a sense with Las Vegas. Um, so that's that's that. And then, uh, you know, there's um, the government itself, the tribal government, as well as the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, and the Indian Health Service, which is that's federal. Um, that's those are probably the government um, provides the the most jobs. I mean, that's where they suck up a, a big part of the labor market. Um, so uh, the you know that that's that's a kind of a little bit of a picture of, of the economy. They did um, Navajo Nation did receive a large amount of federal aid associated. With the with the CARES Act, um, and then with subsequent um, federal relief, uh, federal spending. There's also the infrastructure bill, which should help out with uh, you know building out broadband and even simple things like uh, you know a lot of the there's, there's a very large number of people on the reservation that don't even have running water, and a lot of the roads aren't even paved. So some of that federal money should help with that. Um, it is kind of for those of you interested in politics, it is kind of interesting. Um, so Arizona happens to be a very, very politically uh, uh, close state, you can say, a swing state. Um, and and uh, Joe Biden last time won it by a very, very slim margin. And votes from people, from Navajo people, uh, you know, arguably, I don't, you know, haven't looked at the looked at the uh, the vote tallies closely, but they were arguably very important votes to Biden's election. So um there were some rewards there you know so to speak quid pro quo um which is how politics works that's uh you know you can find that all over the country yeah. um but uh but that's you know for those of you interested in politics there is that i think by helping to elect biden um the biden administration is you know kind of making sure that uh they're they're getting they're just rewards so to speak
0: that's right and investing for the next election
1: yes <laughs> Yes, yeah. both,
0: both political parties
1: do it. This is not a. Uh, this is nothing unusual. Um, nothing unusual about the party. Nothing unusual about the candidate. Nothing unusual about even the time period. This has been the case for politics in America and elsewhere since the dawn of time.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so, but what 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 is unusual is um, the setup of of I mean not just of the Navajo Nation of, of all of these uh, tribal. Uh, regions that, that have the different laws um, it does have an impact as you say on economic development um, a lot of I guess government related economic development to try and counterbalance the fact that this complexity sometimes acts as a barrier um, I mean Walmart we're, we're picking on the, them a little bit but you know it, it will be across the board that if there's a barrier, well, just work up to the uh, up to the up to the border. So I, this is why it was interesting for me because it kind of was was almost bringing out a, a shadow economy um, across the U.S. and um, and one which you know is is not a healthy one, one that either depends a little too much on on government support, and certainly one that. Uh, Probably is, is not really leveraging its it, it strengths as much as it can. Um, in, some, in some ways, it's, it's obviously for very, very good reason. Um, but uh, I think it's a fascinating kind of case um, of how we have so many in, in the US, across the US, so many different colours and shapes and sizes of, of the economy. Um, and this is just yet another, another blend of that.
1: Right. And, and we, you know, the, the U.S. is so economically diverse that it has places that are just, you know, the wealthiest and most econo- economically dynamic and on the planet. Um, we even talked about you know, last week's uh, sort of city of the week was Minneapolis and a real healthy economy. Very, very diverse. A lot of thriving industries. Um, but then you have certain pockets of the country where um, it's it's the. The, the conditions, the the um, just the economic conditions are, are 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 really. I mean, they're they're terrible. I mean, just give you some statistics. Um, so, forty percent of the Navajo Nation's residents lack running water. Twenty seven percent lack electricity. Um, the eighty percent of the area's roads are unpaved, and the unemployment rate is about twenty percent. Um, and these places, uh, you know, are kind of very, have very high rates of alcoholism, suicide, domestic violence. So it's, these, you know, this, you can understand why this might be, a, you know, this should be a priority for, for um, you know, for economic development. Uh, if you want to sort of, besides Indian reservations, and unfortunately these, you know, these grim statistics are, are all too common across Indian reservations. Um, the the other areas of the country that are probably you can say the the most economically depressed you know one would be the Mississippi Delta region um, the the other another it would be the the border uh, parts of the border between Mexico and the United States uh, these are places and we've profiled a couple of those before I think we did Yuma Arizona uh, a couple of months ago um, we did a a place called Pine Bluff Arkansas which is I, I believe it's more the Arkansas Delta, but you can you can consider it Mississippi Delta. It's sort of in that same general area. Um, those are the places where you have, yeah, they, they're just the grimmest um, statistics. And um, you know Pine Bluff, for example, is one of the you know fastest shrinking places in the United States. I mean, just everybody's leaving, and the crime rates are terrible, and the uh, yeah, just just poverty and education levels. Um, really, really unfortunate. Um, and then, you know, you could add to that, um, when we did our story about Baltimore, um, whenever that was a few weeks, few months ago, uh, the, some of these places, um, the, you might call them inner cities that really suffered a lot from deindustrialization and suburbanization, uh, those, um, are also some of the, you know, most oppressed places in the United States and, you know, very important to pay attention to those. They don't get a lot of attention sometimes um, except when there's you know headline grabbing crime or something like that but uh, they are areas of the country that uh, definitely deserve you know attention
0: yes yeah absolutely well it it's a big country um, with a huge population it's it's a it's a continent in a country um, I like to say I should so- also
1: add I you know I should also add while I'm you know kind of listening but the, the places that were Really hit hard by, um, you know, the, the, I'm thinking coal mining in West Virginia, you know, places hit, hit hard, not just deindustrialization, but, um, you know, having mass closures of, of coal mines and mm. other natural resources, extractive industries. Um, those places are, are, are also um, in that category of, you know, sort of the, the, the biggest sufferers uh, across the US economy
0: yes absolutely but certainly labor intensive industries that suddenly just completely disappear is yeah, um yeah, yeah. yeah I mean kind of like what we described on farming but that happened over over decades rather than just in a very short period of time once a plant um or two closed down or a mine um right so right. so jay um that's a, that's a little bit of a downer of a note to, to finish on today, uh, but uh, I know we covered quite a lot uh, going, going around the economy this week's news. I think we'll, we'll call it a day for now. Um, I um, will just remind everyone that we do post this podcast every week um, to coincide with the uh, publication of, of Econ Weekly. Uh, Jay, I'll let you just tell people where to find you and where to find the publication.
1: Sure. Uh, email Jay at EconWeekly.biz, and publication is at EconWeekly.substack.com.
0: Okay, sounds good. We'll be back. Same place. Thank you. Great yep. time. everybody. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye bye.